<laughs> uh, we have some people that just came back. I want to welcome uh, our group back from Macedonia. And uh, yeah, I got Dave and Corey Francis that want to come up to, to, to say a word. Uh, just give us a little report from that. Appreciate that. Okay. You, yeah. Well, Dave says you go first. So. I wanted to share with you my um, souvenir from Macedonia. It was raining, so I had to buy a hat. But when I took it back, Gutsay told me that it was a bowl, not a hat. But then when I got home, Aaron told me he was going to use it for a soccer ball. <laughs> anyway, I thought I'd make you laugh first. Uh, the, the biggest thing for me in Macedonia was just the people and getting to know them, both at the church. Um, even though I had met Gutsay and his wife here before, um, getting to know their family more, and Christian and his family, that was just special. <clears throat> and the people that at the church at Glasnost, we got to know them uh, pretty good, the ones that came to the marriage seminar the first weekend, because we were sharing on a pretty deep level really quick. <laughs> and then um, out at the preschool, there was um, some young fellows who hang out with Baki, who's the guy that is there all the time. And um, even though they don't speak a lot of English out there as much as they do in, in the, at the church in Glasnost, um, we just really connected on a heart level. Sorry, I do this all the time. I was saying he had me crying in the worship, so you know. <laughs> There was one boy who had his birthday while we were there, and he said to one of the other guys to tell me that I had a mother's heart. And so we had just really connected. And I, when I came home, I said I had three more sons. <laughs> so <laughs> I better stop now. Yep. <laughs> All right. So, so that's exactly what our ministry trips are all about when we go out to the nations. It's about building relationships. Um, right now, for all of you in front of the camera, turn around and wave and say hi to Gotze and to Nina and to Micaiah and Samuel. They're watching us from there in Macedonia. It's up here in front at the peak. So it's 8.30 in the evening there. So they are watching and asked me to have you say hi. So I wanted to share with you about uh, three young gentlemen that probably late 20s that came to our marriage ministry event. They're all single, but they know they'd like to be married someday. And their participation in the marriage ministry was pretty significant. Yes. And if you could be remembering to pray for them, the first one is Stanislaus, so that's a little easy for us to remember is Stanislaus. 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 But I go Stanislaus, because that's how I remember it. So Stan is what he went by. And Kiro and John were the three young men that shared with us as part of the marriage ministry, and we had to translate a few of the questions that we had and stuff, but it worked well. We had a good time getting to know them. And I had met them back in March when we were there, so that's part of the ongoing relationship that's going on there. Um, we also were able to do a lot of construction work out at the preschool because of the donations that you all contributed. We worked on building a playground set out there. Um, Baki, who Corey mentioned, is getting a crew together to finish up some of the things that we weren't able to accomplish. We had a couple of rain days, also had a couple of adjustments we had to make along the way because of different materials and things there. So there are ongoing connections between Westside and Glasnost Church and 490 Church, where the preschool is, the preschool itself, and with a church in Velez known, what is the name of the church out there? Philip is the pastor leader, but I don't remember the name of the church out there. It's an evangelical church that's out there. So please be praying for our connections because that's an important thing for us to stay connected. We are the church, and that's the church across the world. We're part of it. We're not just it here. So building the relationship, that's an important part, and you guys were all part of that. So thank you for sending us 
Thank you for receiving us back. And Corey's got something else to say. I forgot. It's okay. Um, I also wanted to encourage everybody that did the Samaritan's Purse Christmas boxes because one of the places they go to is Glasnost, the church in Macedonia. Oh, and um, when Christian and Godse were young, they actually received one of those boxes, and it was the first toys they had ever owned. Now you're going to make me cry. Thanks. <laughs> I'll call my friend Joe up. He's got an awesome word for us today, a challenging word. Lord, thank you for Joe. I just pray that you would uh, anoint him. I pray that you'd get him out of the way, that you'd speak through him, God, that um, whatever you have to speak through us, that we would hear, open our hearts and our minds, we would listen. And I pray for uh, just that we would have a response to that in Jesus' name. I'm back. I'm back. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. It was a it was a great trip in Macedonia. Uh, so I was thinking about this morning how to reflect upon it and how what word would I use to describe the whole week? And uh, I couldn't come up with one, so I have four words. Um, the first one, foremost, is the word patience. Uh, I felt like with our team, this was exemplified very well, and it was very necessary. Um, as we're adjusting to a new culture, new expectations, new, new tasks at hand, new people we're dealing with, um, new materials available or not available to us, and being patient as things come our way, uh, because not everything happens according to your plan. And it reminded me very much of a poem that I've appreciated over the years, and there's a line in it that says, the, um, amongst mice and men, the best laid plans often go awry. And so, which leads me to my second word of flexibility. And that when things don't go the way you want them to, or you're expecting to have something and it doesn't exist there, um, how do you respond to that? Are you simply frustrated and accusations and blame, or do you pivot? And what I saw that was really wonderful amongst our team is there wasn't any of the negatives. People might have been frustrated in the moment, and then you just, you just lay it aside, and everybody was aiming at solving the problem. How do we address this? How do we move forward? How do we pivot? How can we be flexible in this moment so we can keep on pressing forward? Um, and within that, it was really a wonderful thing to see my third word is that people really appreciated one another. So there was a deep-seated appreciation amongst the team for the different talents, the different abilities, the different backgrounds, the different experiences. What everybody was bringing was really well appreciated and considered, and nobody was trying to put themselves up in front in front of anyone else. It was all about the team working together and gelling together well. Um, and so within that as well, the final word was consideration in that we do have a bunch of different people on this trip with different backgrounds, different expectations, different desires, different ways of doing things. And so um, that everyone still considered everyone's opinion. We considered where everyone was at with their strengths, abilities, limitations. Um, and then as often came up, everybody's allergies um, along the trip. And so it was just people were very considerate of one another. And it was really a wonderful thing to see on the trip this a team being a team despite frustrations, despite challenges, despite things that you don't expect. You, everyone wants everything to go to according to plan, but very oftentimes things just don't, and that's life. Life's a messy place. Life isn't just a series of things going exactly as we want them to. So how do we walk together well when this happens? When we have mistakes, when we have uh, unexpected issues, when we have a difference of peoples with a difference of opinions and a difference of approaches, how do we handle that when we move together on these different things we're doing? And so I was reflecting upon that as we're, we're about to go through the book of Acts together, a different book of beginnings. Yeah, we went through the book of Genesis and that took a while. We took it chapter by chapter. Acts is probably going to take a little longer. Um, not because it's a longer book, because there's just so much that's packed into each chapter. We can't just rush through this. But the book of Acts is about people learning to work together from different backgrounds, different cultures, different expectations. 
And they're all coming together under one purpose, and that's Christ. And to serve on his mission together, to advance his kingdom together. And I found that that was the main thing that made this so much easier is that this wasn't any one of our individual missions or tasks or assignment. This wasn't about my vision or Dave's vision or John's vision or anyone else's particular vision. It was about the vision we had working together to come together, to encourage one another, to help another church on a, that are around the world. It wasn't about it had to be my way or had to be their way. It's just how do we make a way together? And we're going to be looking at that a lot as we walk through the book of Acts is that we're going to have to have a whole lot of grace for one another and learn to better appreciate one another if we want to be able to do this thing we call church well. If we want to be a healthy, whole community that is being effective for Christ, we have to work together well. So as we keep this in mind, we're going to begin Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we've got our introduction to this new book, this book of Acts, and he says this is his second book. If you're unfamiliar, the first book is the Gospel of Luke. And so there was too much to include in one document, and so he broke it into two parts. And it's really customary at the beginning of the second one to give a little bit of a summary. In his first book, he talked about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is extremely detailed. It's actually so wonderful that Luke, it's not coincidence that Jesus chose Luke. It's so wonderful that he was able to write these things down for us and keep track for us because now we know what the early church looked like. We know how they walked through these things together. We know how they handled difficulties together. And we can help model how we walk through our lives through what they did thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's still relevant today. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when I read that, I felt that the, the apostles were hoping to skip a really important step because it's not a very pleasant step. They had, it would seem forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew 24 when talking about the end. They want to just rush to the end. That was the, that was the difficult stuff, right? But Jesus had said this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And I don't really fault the apostles for wanting to skip that bit. That doesn't sound pleasant, being put to death and hated by all peoples and being put through persecution and watching lawlessness grow and watching the love of many to grow cold. It doesn't sound good but we're living through it now. We're seeing it happen. And it's a, it's a scary thing to me, particularly if the end is truly upon us. And we don't know that time. That's not a prophecy. The end has been upon us since Jesus said it, and that was 2,000 years ago. But that could also be tomorrow. We don't know. But it's daunting because it, it is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the great day of the Lord because Jesus is coming back. He's going to come and make an end to all sin on this world. He's going to make everything right once more. He's going to usher us into eternity where we can be with God forever and free from the burden of sin that has weighed so heavily on this planet since it came. We will be 
with the Lord. It's a great day, but it is also going to be a terrible day because it is the beginning of the great tribulation upon this earth. And just reading through the book of Revelations and the things that we can even understand from that aren't good. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a great tribulation on the entire world. And it's not something I look forward to. It's not something I want my children to have to live through. It's not something I want to have to live through. And yet it's coming. And we don't know when. There should be a certain level of urgency to us to consider, have we brought as many people as we can to know their Savior? Have we made every effort to bring them before the throne of grace and allow them that opportunity to know Christ? Because so often in our lives, we just live day after day after day. It's been 2,000 years, right? Jesus isn't coming back soon, but he might be coming back tomorrow. There should always be a measure of urgency because there's always going to be a too late. Too late is either when you leave this world or Jesus returns to it. One or the other, there will be a too late. And if you are in Christ, you have your salvation, that's wonderful. But what about those that aren't? There should be a level of urgency. If we watch someone walking towards a cliff, you would warn them, you're walking towards a cliff. You'd say, hey, look out. And if they turned back to you and said, nope, I got it, I'm fine. And they kept walking towards that cliff. Would you just go, well, they said they got it, they're fine. Or would you have an urgency? No, you're going to fall off. You're going to die. You're going to get hurt. At the very least, you can't be doing this. As they got closer and closer, the more urgent you would become. You're walking towards a cliff. And yet we get so often in our lives, like, well, they said they didn't want to hear about it, so I tried. That's not meant as a condemnation. It's meant as a realization. Is this how we're approaching this? To consider there is a great and terrible day coming. And there's a mission, a mission that we're all called to, the Great Commission, to go to the ends of the earth. And I've heard it described this way many times of trying to give some context to it, because he says you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But contextually, what is that? And so it was described to me many a time that Jerusalem is the idea of your same place, your same culture. El Dorado County, that's Jerusalem for us. It's very familiar. You could go almost anywhere in El Dorado County, and people are going to kind of have the same attitudes about things. It's going to be the same feel around it. People have the same relative motivations. Not 100%, but you can, by and large, you have the same feel no matter where you go in the county. But then you've got Judea. It's not the same place, but when you go there, it's, it's really, it still feels like the same people. You can still relate. You can have the same sort of conversations. You could just, you could get along very quickly. It'd be like going up to Auburn, down to Jackson. It's very similar people in these areas. It's not home, but it wouldn't take long for you to fit right in. It's when we get to Samaria that things start getting a little bit difficult, where we haven't even really gone that far away, but somehow we're not in Kansas anymore is that you could go about three hours from here, a little place called San Francisco. (laughs) You're still in California. You're in the United States. You have not left even the state you're in, but you feel like you're in another world. Like, we are all speaking English here, but I don't think we're speaking English here. We have lost the ability to communicate well with one another here. You go there, you have to learn a different sort of culture just to start reaching people even with the same language, same state, same nation. And yet, this does not feel like home. You have to start making more efforts to break down walls in order to relate to these people, let alone going to the ends of the earth, someplace like Macedonia, where you run into things where you can't even read the words anymore that are written on the wall. This is Cyrillic. That, on the front of that, you can come look at it later. It's probably really hard to see, especially if you're where Josh is, way in the back. That says glasnost, but I would have not known that unless it was sent to me. 
because although some of the letters are similar, most of them don't make the same sounds, let alone the letters that are completely foreign to us. And so we can't even begin to read the signs around us. You could go to Mexico and you could make most things out. Cacion. Maybe I shouldn't go there. That sounds a lot like caution. It's close enough we can relate. But to get to somewhere where you can't even read, you can't understand the language. I can't imagine having tried to go to Macedonia without the four translators that were with us. Two, three of which grew up there. So they understood the culture, they understood the norms, they understood the patterns of life there. If we hadn't had that, we could have not done nearly what we, anything in which we did. Be spending half the time simply trying to have a conversation with somebody and being only successful because they spoke some English. There's so much we are hindered in the going because we live in the nation with the trade language. And we get this mentality, this hubris, that our culture is the right way and our language is the right way and everyone else should just learn that and wouldn't it be easier? Well, yes, if everyone knew the same language, everything's easier. We call it the Tower of Babel. Things went bad. <laughs> but understanding that if we want to be able to go to these places, we have to start breaking down some barriers. A lot of times it will begin with language and culture and this understanding that my way isn't right and their way is wrong. It's just different. And if I want to relate to them, if I want to go to them, it's not my job to try to break down their barriers. It's my job to break down mine so that I can actually reach them. When Paul talks about the going, he doesn't talk about conforming them to him. He said, I became all things to all people that in I might win some. That if we want to make it to the ends of the earth, we have to be committed to an inward change, an inward difference in expectations in order so that we can go and actually reach people. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who you have taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Two things here. We're seeing both his ascension, and it's being talked about, real fancy $2 word, the perusia which I did not know about that word until I read this chapter. I think maybe I'd heard it once before. It's just talking about the return of Christ to this world, his second coming. It's alluded to talking about he's going to come back in the same way. And this is actually an allusion back to Daniel 7 that's repeated over and over again through scripture of how we will know Christ has returned. It's going to be in this way. Daniel 7, 13 through 14, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is what it's going to look like when the Messiah, the Christ, God Almighty comes to this earth. And Jesus said this of himself when he was being accused. Out of Matthew 26, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when we go and we read the book of Revelation, which I encourage all of you to do, to be nice and frightened before you go to bed. <laughs> Chapter 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand in which he uses to reap the earth. This idea that Jesus is coming back and his return will be undeniable by all. We're forewarned to not believe anybody claiming he's in the wilderness. He's out there. Come with me. I've got secret knowledge. I know where he is. No. Be warned. Jesus' return will be a worldwide event. Everybody's going to know. It will be undeniable. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said something we're going to talk about in a minute. But I wanted to focus in on this important little piece that we miss if we just rush right past this. Talking about how many people there were is 120 people. Why mention that particular number? Um, it's actually important in the sense of the size of their community being about that size was necessary to have a local council, local Sanhedrin, which is essentially your own local court system to handle any of the issues that would arise. Any less than that number, you can only have a council of three, and they can't handle most of the issues. But the fact that there were 120, they were able to have this. And it's just kind of a fun little fact. But the other important part there that I wanted to point out, this idea of togetherness, this idea that it wasn't just the leaders of the community going off and having a summit meeting and saying, we'll hear from God and we'll bring it back to you. No, they were there together. The leaders, the women, Jesus' mother, the brothers, they were all there together waiting on the Lord praying together, taking part in the ministry together. They may have a difference in roles, but they don't have a difference in value. We are all members of Christ's church. We are all saints. We are all children of God. We are all in this together, each one having an individual calling from God. We might have different things we're doing, but that doesn't change that we all have the same value before the Lord. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So I was curious, so I looked up those Psalms. And I want to share them with you to help us try to understand how do we see these things ourselves as we read through Scripture, these things that are pointing to what's to come. So the first one is, one is out of Psalm 69, and it's actually a bigger passage than a reading from. It kind of highlights the whole moment here. It says, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And to them, punishment upon punishment, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And in Psalm 109, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guiltily. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. Now when we read through these, how do we immediately know that these are alluding to Judas and Jesus? Because I've read a lot of scripture, and I do not catch all these things myself. And I was considering, how do we know the difference? How do we know whether this is just poetic language? How do we know it's prophetic language? How do we know it's an illusion? How do we know it's some form of allegory? How do we know when it's just being literal? How do we know? Well, 
I came up with three different things to help us on this journey. The very first thing is to have a good general understanding of what's in the Bible. It would have been really hard to know that's talking about Judas and Jesus if we weren't familiar with any of the Gospels. But you read two or three of the Gospels and you hear the accounting of Jesus' accusation, his trial, him being crucified, all of a sudden all that language starts popping out at you and go, hey, I see that. But if you hadn't read any of those or weren't familiar with any of those, who would not know it at all? So having a good general knowledge of what's going on through the narrative of Scripture is extremely helpful. Having gone through Genesis, there's so much more we know historically than we would have before. There's so much more we know about motivations and things they're referring to. There's so much more you can know by reading through the book of Acts to understand what Paul is talking about in all of his letters. All of the epistles, you've got Ephesians, Philippians, um, Galatians, all of these are letters to churches. They're half a conversation. Acts gives us a good deal of the rest of the context to help us better understand what was being talked about in reference to what was going on. Now, there's a lot of other books in the Bible that are very, very dry. When you read through Leviticus, when you read, read through Deuteronomy, and you read through all these different laws and things, they may be difficult to get through, but they're important to understand what's being referred to through Scripture. There's so much where it's constantly pointing back or pointing forward that if we don't know what's there, we're not going to get it. <coughs> so I would encourage you to take that time to have a, even just a basic understanding of what's contained in the different literary elements of Scripture. Now, the second thing to consider is that a lot of these things are really hard to see. And even the most brilliant of minds at this time didn't see them. When you read the end of the Gospel of Luke, it talks about the road to Emmaus, when Jesus sat down and he walked through where he was throughout Scripture. People that had been with Jesus for the last three years, people who had grown up being taught Torah, and so even they couldn't see all these things. So give yourself a little bit of slack if you're not being able to spot them all, but to still have a good general knowledge as you're working through. And then the last thing, is to be humble as you're reading through Scripture. Because when we read through things, to understand that not all Scripture is literal. And I know that can be fighting words for some. <laughs> this idea that not everything that written is meant literally. And I will give you one of the easy examples. When Paul says to give double honor to those that labor in preaching and teaching, and he references a particular law. He references the law that says, do not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. And he says, is not that law for the ox or more so for man? It's the idea that the law, in the way it's written, is an allusion to something. It's an allegory. It's to help us better understand a concept. And not all things are strictly written as a literal statement take the muzzle off the ox while it's literally treading out grain. It's talking about people. When people are working, make sure to pay them for it. Make sure that they can still sustain themselves as they're doing the work. It's an illusion. Same with much of prophecy. When Daniel has visions of what's to come, he's envisioning beasts that come and conquer. But they're not literal beasts. Each beast represents a different nation that's to come. And they, we can actually see through history what those different nations were. When you read through the book of Revelation, it's talking about the downfall of the great prostitute. It's not an actual woman. It's not even an actual city because it talks about the great prostitute is the city of Babylon. But it's going to, the idea of Babylon falling is the way of this world. All this world's values, all this world's plans, everything that it holds dear is going to fall. There are illusions that scripture gives us to help us better understand things conceptually, ways that we can relate and share it with one another. So it's important that we have humility as we read through scripture, because yes, it would be so much easier to read it if it's all 100% literal. But I'm gonna have to burst the bubble. It's not. So humbly approach scripture. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So this is interesting. This might make certain people feel uncomfortable because the idea of leaving something up to chance is the equivalent of flipping a coin between the two guys. But it's a, actually a long-recorded effort of the people of God trying to take the human element out of a decision. Because no matter what you do in trying to take the human element out, if you are going to settle on something, you're going to have some of your opinions, thoughts, desires, ambitions. All of that will inevitably cloud some of it. And so this is their effort to remove as much of that as possible. Out of Proverbs 16, 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's a very well-held practice amongst them. They used to have these two stones called the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest would hold. And when they were consulting God, he had a little pouch and he'd put one in and he says, If it's this decision, let it be that one. If it's this decision, let it be that one. And they'd reach in and it would make the decision for them. We see this recounted in 1 Samuel 14 when they're trying to figure out why they lost the battle and who was it at fault. Is it between the people or is it between Saul and his son Jonathan? And when it was fell to them, well, which one of two of them? And it falls to Jonathan, and then we have a follow-up question. We see it in Joshua 7 when you had the defeat at Ai, and they're trying to figure out who caused this to happen. What ended up happening is Achan took loot that was meant for destruction, and he buried it in his tent. They found out who it was by casting lots amongst all the tribes, amongst all the families, and went all the way down to Achan himself. We see this in Jonah 1 when he's on the boat fleeing from the Lord, and the storm has come up, and they cast lots to see whose fault this was, and the lot fell to Jonah. It's in their best attempt to take the human element out of finding things out and making decisions. Now, I'm not suggesting everything in your life, just leave it up to a coin toss. But to consider as much as you can, how can you take the human element out of that? Because we are imperfect people, and we should be consulting the Lord when we are making decisions. Now, what can we learn from this chapter as a whole? What can we narrow down and hone in on so we actually have a bite-sized chunk that we can take with us and apply to our lives throughout the week? And I've come up with three specific things. The first of which is that God's call on your life requires action and a certain amount of self-motivation. Everything God has called you to is something you need to do. Even if what you do is simply a choice. When you are presented with salvation itself, God's gift of mercy in your life, the forgiveness of all your sins, it takes making a choice. It's choosing Jesus and setting yourself aside. It's determining I was wrong and my way is not the way. I am choosing to allow God to be my king. I'm choosing to open myself up to the Holy Spirit and be changed. It's a call to action. And he has an individual call on everybody's life. When he says, go to all the earth, that means not a single one of us is exempted from that. Not a single one of us is the calling, hey, come to me and sit and do nothing forever. Every single one of us is called to something. You might be called to Jerusalem. You might be called to Judea, Samaria. Some will be called to the ends of the earth. But it is a calling that requires some action. That calling itself doesn't save you. Only Jesus' work on the cross saves you. You're not earning your salvation. You're simply walking out your sanctification. God allowing you to be changed day by day more into his likeness. And that follows a series of choices responding to how Jesus prompts you day after day after day. Out of Isaiah 58, it says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healings shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That doesn't come from sitting around and doing nothing. That doesn't come from ignoring God's call in your life. That comes by responding every time the Holy Spirit prompts you. And the beginning, it might be a difficult choice. It might be outside of how you've normally operated the rest of your life. But our sanctification isn't instant. Oftentimes, it's a slow process of chiseling away the things that are not good for you. Becoming more and more into Christ's likeness. So that over time, that decision, that choice becomes easier and easier to make. Till all of a sudden, you don't even feel like you're making a choice anymore. It's simply God has changed who you are but you allowed that change to happen by allowing him to continue to work on you day after day after day. And we want to be responsive to God. We want to be on his mission. We want to be on this call. We want to be moving forward. We want to be changed. And every now and then, he calls us to wait. And nobody enjoys waiting. Sometimes the waiting is long, and sometimes the waiting is short. The apostles were called to wait for 10 days that's not a big deal. Sometimes you're, not, you're called to wait the same as Abraham, which was 25 years. Yeah. Who's ready for that sort of waiting? But to realize during the waiting, we can still be productive. We can still be making good use of the time. Out of Isaiah 26, it says, the path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of your soul, of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Joshua 1, talking about, we're going. We don't know how long this is going to be. We don't know how it's going to go. But what do we do while we're going? Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Are we waiting and waiting upon the Lord? Are we meditating on his word day and night? Are we already looking at the things that have been presented before us, saying, hey, this will make things go well, or as well as they possibly can be in your life, by understanding and knowing what is already written for us, what is already wisdom, what is already carries us to knowledge and good success in our lives, is the word of God. It's been carried down to us through centuries. It's not new revelation. It's good old-fashioned stuff. Are we taking the time to learn it? Are we taking the time to study it? Are we taking time to see what's there that I didn't realize 10 years ago? And as we do so, we are prepared for when the call actually does come. Because we don't know when that day will be. Oftentimes, it's in ways we never expect or want it to, but the call still comes. I experienced this the first time in the way I really realized what had happened about 10 years ago when my grandmother died. Now, my grandparents had had three children, two of which that had died long before this event. 
There was, there was only one son left, my father, and he was in prison at the time. So the person who should have been handling the bulk of this and managing a lot of this was not there. And so that left it to my grandfather, who was distraught after losing his wife of over 50 years and trying to handle this moment, and my cousin and I. And I don't know if any of you have been the one responsible for handling things when someone passes away. It's not an easy ordeal. Walking people through grief and confusion and pain and sorrow isn't an easy thing to do. But I'd been prepared for this. Through the time leading up to this, I'd been discipled. I'd had people invite me to study, to learn, to oftentimes when I didn't want to, because it was inconvenient to me. It was out of my schedule. It was out of my rhythm. I knew it was good for me, but I, I resented it from time to time, not wanting to give up my time for it. But if I hadn't done that, I would not have been prepared for that event when it came. To be able to speak truth to people, to be able to speak love and hope and encouragement in their lives, to be able to talk about celebrating life that is passing into eternity, to be able to give people hope within this, to be able to acknowledge their sorrow and their grief and walk them through this process. I was prepared. And I didn't know that's what I was being prepared for at the time. And if I hadn't had it, I would have been just as lost as everyone else was in the family in that moment. And so I was able to go back and tell my mentors, thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for that preparation. I didn't know if that was what it was for. It often comes in ways that we aren't anticipating it will, but how wonderful it is when it comes and you're not caught off guard and you're ready to walk through it. And to understand within this, during the waiting, during the call, we're in this together. We're on the same mission. We have the same purposes. We have the same value before Christ. Out of Colossians 3, it says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In Acts 10, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. When we look at our community, when we look at our purposes, when we look at what we're doing, we need to value everyone. We need to appreciate everyone. We need to encourage everyone. We need to come alongside everyone. We need to understand that each and every one of us is here because we've called upon Christ or we're searching for Christ right now. We have the same purpose. We are on the same mission. And when we find ourselves able to set aside my plans, my ambitions, my visions, my way, and we're able to simply pick up God's way, it makes it so much easier for us to work together, us to move forward together every day. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with us? Thanks, Joe. That was excellent. Appreciate that. Sometimes a hard word to hear, uh, but it is God's word, and we will not shy away from, from that. Um, it's actually very clear. As the worship team comes up, uh, now's the time where we're going to take communion, and then we'll bring forth our tithes, loves, gifts, and offerings. Um, if you are you call Westside your home, uh, and this is your family, and, and God has put it upon your heart to tithe. You can do that in three ways, online, on the app, or in the box there. That's up to you. That's between you and the Lord. I'd encourage you to pray about what he wants, to, uh, wants for you to, to sacrifice. Uh, because he sacrificed his son, he gave his first fruit uh, for us, and that's the, the requirement. And I, I would just challenge you to, to pray about it. Uh, and so as we 
as we take communion, what we're doing is we're reaching back and we're remembering what Christ did for us on the cross. And his body was broken for us and his blood was spilled. And, and um, speaking of prophecy, reaching back about 700 years before Christ walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah spoke of his, his um, crucifixion. In the 53rd chapter, starting in verse 4, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Christ didn't deserve what he got on the cross. We deserve what he got on the cross. And that's where it's talking about our peace being upon Christ. And the worst thing that we could do is forget that. And so every time we take communion and we take the cracker and we take the juice, which represents his body and his blood poured out for us on the cross and something that he didn't deserve. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And uh, amen to that, because we're set free from a prison that, uh, that we were uh, certainly to be put to death in. And so uh, we're going to remember that today. Valerie has a word for us as we begin uh, communion and uh, worship. So it's right before um, the prayer, the sermon. Um, God, Chris was saying that we sometimes go through a hard time and we should praise God anyway. And God reminded me of showing me that when they used to sing a song in church a lot called um, or with a scripture in it uh, about bringing a sacrifice of praise to the house of the Lord. And I didn't understand what that meant until I was going through some very difficult trials. And God also showed me the scripture that says, the Lord inhabits the praises of the people. And he told me that sacrifice is not for him, it's for our sakes, because then he is draws close to us as we're praising him. And that the joy of the Lord, which he brings to us through that praise is our strength says the joy of the Lord is our strength. If you need strength to go through those trials, bring that sacrifice of praise. He will draw close to you, and you will have that strength. Thank you. Let's take communion. <clears throat> 